Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Diochli here with Jan and Zach. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Hey, hello, everybody. 2018, obviously, starting in a much happier and better note all around the world than 2017 ended. So, huzzah. When we normally talk about Iran, it's because of their nuclear program, their support for militants across the Middle East. It is usually not because of anything like this. So translate from the Farsi, that means death to Khamenei, the country's supreme leader. And that's from some of the massive crowds of protesters who've been cramming the streets of Iran's biggest cities. So we're going to talk about where that anger comes from and why it's driven in part by the nuclear deal that President Trump wants to tear up. So Zach, you had a great piece on this on Vox.com. What's going on? Why are they so angry? So this started, as far as we can tell from public slogans, with something really, really boring sounding. It's the price of eggs in Iran. The basic reason why is that the price of eggs came to symbolize an economy that's been slow and full of unemployment with high levels of inflation for a long period of time. The Rouhani government, President Rouhani, Iran has both a supreme leader and a president. The president who championed the nuclear deal was supposed to improve the economy, and in some ways he has. But in many other ways, the fundamental change that he promised would would come from the nuclear deal didn't. So you had this pent-up combination of— Uh, deep anger at the government failing to deliver on its promises, and even deeper anger at the system that governs Iran and has led to such a slow economy uh, and and such a poorly functioning economy for a long period of time. And this all came together in part because a bunch of chickens were killed, about 17 million last year, because of bird flu. So the culling of chickens led to an increase in egg prices specifically, which helped spark these small protests in the city of Mashhad, Iran's second largest city, which then snowballed out of control. Right. And, and some of the numbers are really amazing. You have unemployment for the young part of the population at about 40%, which is incredible. You have inflation that has come down, but is still really high. And it's worth, I think, talking a bit about the nuclear deal, because we look at it often from the American point of view. We look at it, did it slow the nuclear program? Is it ultimately the national security of the United States? Should Trump tear it up just because Obama did it and he hates anything Obama did? But it's worth looking at it from the Iranian point of view. Right. I mean, as you mentioned, President Rouhani, who was seen as a moderate by the standards of Iran, had said to his country, let's sign this deal. This deal may not be as popular as we might think it is. It wasn't popular there in the same way it wasn't popular necessarily here, but it will bring foreign investment. Money is going to flow in and the economy is going to change. And, and Jim, this hasn't really happened. I mean, it because you've talked a lot about sort of never forgetting the Iranian point of view. But from their point of view, this didn't necessarily bring them what they thought they would get from a deal we didn't necessarily like here. Right. So, you know, the fundamental bargain of the Iran deal was we, you know, remove these really harsh economic sanctions that have been on Iran for, you know, for years. The point of those sanctions was to push them to the negotiating table. Um, It worked, right? They came to the negotiating table and we signed a deal. And it was, you know, it was quid pro quo. Like, you put these restrictions on your nuclear program. They poured concrete on one of their reactors, right? They have strict inspections of all their facilities or most of their facilities, at least. Um, And, you know, in exchange, they were supposed to get not just the lifting of sanctions, but also this kind of understanding that we would, as the U.S. and then Europe more broadly, kind of let businesses start to do business with Iran. And it was supposed to have these kind of economic dividends, these economic benefits for um, for Iran. And it was supposed to be essentially like the trickle down effect, right? It was it wasn't just for the elite. It was going to be for 
for everyone in Iran. And part of the problem and what you hear from some of the protesters and their slogans is about corruption. So it's also the fact that they think the system is being mismanaged, that the elites, including the um, Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, the IRGC, which is this kind of elite paramilitary organization that's charged with defending the Islamic Republic and defending the, you know, the core kind of Islamic character of the republic. They have their fingers in all these parts of the economy. Um, there are there have been, you know, big kind of corruption scandals with people. There's, you know, one guy who absconded with, you know, millions of millions of dollars. Um, and because of that kind of paired with the lack of economic growth, they see this, you know, these corrupt elites with all this money, they're, you know, having to pay double for the price of eggs all of a sudden. Fuel prices are going up um, because of that kind of confluence of things. So they're mad not just at Rouhani, they're mad at kind of the broader system. Which I think is interesting because the last time you had protests that got this much attention or were this much, or were this big, excuse me, was in 2009. And there, there was an interesting American dilemma that we'll come back to a little bit later on about what the U.S. should or shouldn't say. But Zach, you talk about this in the piece the demographic difference is fascinating and really important to talk about who was in the streets then compared to who's in the streets now. Right. So the 2009 protest was over an election, a presidential election. Um, the president, again, being popularly chosen, but still answering to the supreme leader fundamentally, who's unelected and a cleric. Uh, and it looked like the supreme leader rigged the election in 2009 for his favorite candidate. So millions of people mostly focused in the city of Tehran, the capital, and mostly educated and middle class or upper class came out to demonstrate against the election being stolen. So that wasn't necessarily against the system in the way that these protests are. It was against the idea that one specific action inside the system was unfairly done. In this case, you have people saying, down with the regime, right, which it took a while for those last protests to get to. And right. more interestingly, the demographics, as Yochi suggested, are completely different, right? You have uh, much younger people. Uh, the people who are in the last protest aren't really in this one. Um, so from what we can tell from Iranian government statistics on arrests, they're mostly in their teens and their 20s, maybe early 30s. And they're mostly lower middle class or lower class. These protests are happening in towns in addition to cities, right? Really economically deprived areas of Iran that have not historically in the country been hotbeds for political activity. So you're seeing a whole new kind of political activism in Iran, one that it's not obvious the regime knows how to deal with. What's interesting, and I found this fascinating, is that there's a lot of talk of, you know, why didn't people see this coming? And part of the the reason that people suspect is that it started in, you know, Mashhad, like Zach said, the second largest city, and spread to lots of other towns and cities. And Tehran was kind of slow to get on board with the protests. And a lot of Western journalists have most of their contacts in Tehran with the upper kind of middle class, the educated, you know, English speaking people who tend to be there. And therefore, like, one of the theories is that because they just didn't have a lot of contacts in these areas, they didn't really see this coming. And I found fascinating that BBC Persian actually did a study and found that in 90%, roughly, of the cities where we've seen protests in the last few days, there have actually been protests over the past six months. So this isn't really new. It's kind of been been simmering for a while, um, and then suddenly just kind of erupted, and all of a sudden, like, it spread really fast. And so it's kind of fascinating. This isn't something that, like, if you lived in these areas, you would see this discontentment brewing. But it, it feels really sudden. You know, so the role of the media is fascinating because it's, I agree completely. I mean, the, the reporters who are there, the Western reporters, 
they're brave, right? This is not like an easy assignment, and, and right. they're doing they're doing incredible work given the restrictions. But the Iranian media here has been fascinating, and more specifically, part of what may have been the spark to this thing that you point out, you know, correctly, I think, was simmering was a leak of the Iranian budget, and the the presumption is that the leak came from President Rouhani, which is fascinating. But there were things in it, specific things in it, that you then saw caused it to explode. Some of it was billions of dollars that hadn't been known to be going to Islamist organizations in the country, going to those organizations, how much money the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps was receiving and spending outside of Iran, which was in the billions and billions. So you had that. So people found out specifically how much money was going to things they didn't like. And then when it came to things they did like, they had the cash subsidies for people, just generally welfare being cut, fuel prices going up, Zach, as you said, kind of egg prices going up, public schools being privatized. So you had this like specific leak of a budget and everything in the budget had something in it to anger people. And what's fascinating to me about that is not just the numbers, but we don't think of Iran as having like an aggressive media covering this government. We don't think of them as getting leaks and then spreading leaks pretty quickly over social media. But in this case, they did. And I think, you know, Jen, to your point, if you had this thing kind of simmering, then this is kind of the match you throw. And suddenly people are like, holy hell, we're spending $11 billion in Iraq and Syria, and we have no money here. You know, I, I was talking to Suzanne Maloney, who's a, an Iran expert at the Brookings Institution, you know, and asking, why now are these protests happening? We've, we've seen similar protests over the years. There was one in 2012 about, again, the price of eggs, the price of chicken, the price of poultry. Uh, we've seen, you know, economic discontent, issues with economic inequality. So why now? You know, what's going on? And, and she said that it was part of this kind of broader, deliberate campaign on the part of the hardliners to undermine Rouhani specifically on the economic reforms. So, you know, he released this additional information showing how much money normally goes to, you know, state institutions and how much he thinks should go to state institutions. So cutting some of these services and they kind of immediately mobilize people and say, look, he's trying to to hurt you guys. You're suffering already. So I think it's really fascinating to point out that, yeah, it, it, a lot of this, you know, we we talk about how this is related to the Iran deal in the U.S. and it, in many ways it is, but also it's really important to to kind of emphasize that this is in large part an internal kind of Iranian economic issue, which is in part affected by the Iran deal and sanctions and things like that. What I love is that it's just backfired in the regime's face. Right, absolutely. The Iran deal actually is worth kind of talking about because we're approaching a massively important deadline on the deal. In the next two weeks, roughly, President Trump has to decide, one, whether to certify it again, which to a degree is, you know, it's rhetorical. But more importantly, does he waive sanctions on Iran? And the sanctions, as we were talking about earlier, were lifted as part of the Iran deal. Every 120 days, roughly, he has to waive them again. If he doesn't waive them, they slap back and the deal collapses. And there is a theory that's out there that this may push him to do what he has hinted he wants to do, which is reimpose those sanctions and probably kill the deal. The logic is, if Iran is cracking down on people in the streets, the Iranian government is cracking down on people in the streets, the last thing he might want to do is give the Iranian government more money. And, and that's, there had been this question before all of this about whether Trump would tear up the deal. In the past, he said he would. We've talked about in previous episodes how he hasn't, but whether this might be the thing that pushes him finally to do it. And to me, that's in some ways, we don't want to make everything always about the U.S., but when it comes to the Iran deal, the role of the U.S. is enormous. The role of Trump is enormous. And I do think when we're all looking forward to this, what this means the next week, two weeks going forward, there's some reporting that the protests themselves are dying down a little bit. There are fewer people coming out. Some of the cities that had them don't have them anymore. But the question here now in Washington is, what do they mean for the deal? What do they mean for when Trump has to decide, do those sanctions come? 
do those sanctions go? And I think that's where a little bit where this protest idea goes to. I mean, I don't know. In a rational world, there would be no reason to torpedo the Iran deal over protests uh, that are essentially against the regime, right? This is a a deal that's actually quite popular in Iran right now, and the sort of more pro-American factions of the Iranian government have invested a lot in the idea that they can play ball with the Americans and and get something out of it. And so this would be an incredible gift to hardliners. But we're not living in a rational world, right? We're living in a world where the president makes decisions for reasons that even his own aides don't fully understand. So to answer your question, Yoki, I, I have no idea how this is going to affect the way the president thinks about things. Because on this kind of decision, I don't know if anybody knows how the president thinks about things. Right. I mean, there's some talk in the Senate already about putting new sanctions that would be kind of like a slave hand that would allow Trump to say, we've made this deal tougher, but in actuality, they won't. So the deal could kind of like limp along a little bit more, but we won't know, does it limp to its death? Does it limp still and somehow still survive? Right. I mean, we've seen we've seen the Trump administration already apply sanctions in ways that are unrelated to the nuclear deal, but that still feel like they can pressure Iran. So, um, you know, the IRGC sanctioning some members of the IRGC um, and various other members of the Iranian regime in a way that isn't specifically related to parts of you know their economy related to the nuclear program, but that are related to their support for, you know, for terrorist groups um, in the Middle East and, and more broadly. So. There are ways that that the Trump administration could continue to pressure the regime without torpedoing the deal. And and I think it's we should also talk about there was a big kind of conversation both back in 2009 in the Obama administration and this week during the protests about how much should the U.S. get involved in these protests, right? Like, should Trump come out and say, you know, I support these protesters um, against the regime Uh, Obama was slammed in 2009 for not being quick enough um, and supportive enough of the pro-democracy protesters. So there was a big conversation this time around. Um, And I think it's really interesting to see that the administration has essentially decided to go a lot farther than than Obama did. They came out and, and said not just, you know, we support the right to protest, but they also called on the regime to unblock like Telegram, these other messaging apps that they had blocked to try to to you know, quell the protests. Um, they even encouraged, so a, a member of the administration came out and encouraged Iranians to use VPNs, virtual private networks. So basically saying, to go use technology to circumvent your government. So they came out much more forcefully um, in support of the, of the protesters this time around. In part, I think it comes back to a really hard question that the U.S. faced, frankly, in Egypt also during the Arab Spring, which is, if you say anything that sounds like you're supporting the protest, then the government could say, as the Iranian government already has, this is being fomented by our outside enemies, by the Americans, by the Zionists, whomever. So if you talk, you potentially give the regime a tool, a rhetorical tool to use to justify a crackdown. If you don't talk, as Obama did not do in 2009, then you have the risk of just seeming like we, the U.S., don't care about democracy. Really, when it comes to this, I don't envy Donald Trump or his advisor, because this is a legitimately hard question, and there is no good answer. There's a risk to both. Right now, they've been very careful, they being President Trump, to not get say what many hawks would like them to say, which is, this is the time for regime change. Right. This is the time where that regime has to go. They've sort of hinted they don't like the regime. They've hinted here, they've hinted there, but they haven't said it. And that's really important because if they do say it, this whole thing changes. They've actually explicitly said the opposite. So Heather Nauer, the spokesperson for the State Department, was explicitly asked by a journalist the other day, do you guys support regime change? Is that the policy? Like, what is the end goal of the Trump administration's policy here. And she said, no, we think if the Iranian people can get 
what they want, better economic progress, things like that, the things that they're asking for from this current government, then that's okay. I hate this debate. I hate the way that it plays out in Washington. It is often so narcissistic. It is so as if the entire thing hinges on on whether the U.S. president gives a speech and like that'll determine the course of events in Iran. In the Egypt case that Yochi mentioned, the U.S. had an incredible amount of leverage because in 2011, Hosni Mubarak was was American-backed, right? We gave him a lot of money. We had a strategic alliance with him, not formally an alliance, but a partnership. Iran is a hostile state, right? It's a hostile state that has built— a great deal of its of its public legitimacy on anti-Americanism. The idea that Washington has the ability to dictate events on the ground through rhetorical gestures is crazy. But both sides of this argument treat it as if we have the fundamental final say on Iran, and it gets so vicious and personal. I, I don't know. I think that's a bit of a, of a straw man. I don't think the debate is— if the U.S. does it, things change. If the U.S. doesn't do it, things things don't. That was never the argument in 2009, nor the argument in Egypt. The question is, in many ways, quite a step back from that. The question is, should the U.S. offer rhetorical support or not? But I haven't heard anybody make the case, and I was covering it in 2009, that if the U.S. had done it, everything would change, the Iranian government would fall. Wait, that, that's the whole bill against Obama that conservatives have made since 2009, right? The whole argument has been the Green Revolution failed because Obama didn't step up and do something. Yeah, so I think it's kind of in in the middle there. I think there actually are concrete ways, particularly in 2009, that the U.S. could have. So one thing we've heard from uh, experts talking to them um, about these protests this round is that one of the big things that Trump administration could do to signal real support for the protesters is to lift the the travel ban, placing you know strict restrictions on Iranians coming to the U.S. And, and there's a reason for that. So if the U.S stands up and says, you know, we back these protesters. If those protesters get to the point where they feel like they need to flee in order to survive and they know that the U.S. has their back and will take them in and give them asylum, that's actually an important kind of impetus for a broader protest movement. So if the leaders of a a serious protest movement know that they have the backing of one of the most powerful countries on earth— and that they will allow them to come and protect them and potentially give them money and support, there is an actual tangible result to that. So I think the U.S. can play a role. I think in this case, it's less clear what the U.S. could do because it's not clear that these are pro-democracy protesters necessarily. There's no kind of centralized leadership. It seems a kind of amorphous protest movement that's mostly focused on kind of internal economic issues. So there's less way that the U.S. could openly kind of back that. But again, you know, experts, uh, Suzanne Maloney among them, told you, Zach, I remember in your piece that, you know, one of the best ways that Trump could actually signal support would be to show the Iranian people that, like, we will take you in if you need political asylum and lift the travel ban. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, Jen. But it, the point that I want to emphasize is that's actual action. And in right. 2009, a number of Iranians did come to the United States because we yeah. hadn't imposed a travel ban on Iranians coming here. That wasn't dependent on Barack Obama giving a big grand statement, right. which is what this argument tends to come down to. Right. So we're going to stop there for now and switch to a vastly different part of the world and a vastly different topic, which is Iceland, something we don't normally have a chance to talk about on Worldly nor on Elsewhere, which is what we're going to be talking about this week. Because Iceland passed a law that you have not seen anywhere in the world, not certainly not in Iran, but also not in the United States, not elsewhere in Europe, which is mandating pay equality for men and for women, making it law that if you are a company above 25 employees, if you do not pay the same amount of money to men and women, 
you're going to get fined by the government, which is fascinating. We don't always talk on the show about things other countries are trying to do to solve problems we face here. And this is a sometime tangible way that one country is trying to do something that's a problem here. And it's interesting. It's something that may not work. There's some question about legally will it stand, politically will it stand. But for the moment, it passes, you know, Zach, with support of the right-wing party there as well, which is interesting. It's overwhelmingly popular, and it's an attempt to solve something we in this country have come nowhere near solving. Yeah, Iceland, is it's so fascinating and very unique, actually, in terms of the way that it approaches issues like this. First of all, like basic ground statistics, uh, Iceland— has the highest rank in the world on the Global Gender Gap Index, which is a statistic used by the World Economic Forum to assess women's status in society. So by one, and by a lot too, by a long shot. So one influential metric says it's the most gender egalitarian country in the world. Now, how did it get this way is a really interesting question. That's how you get policies like the one we're talking about. And it turns out that in other countries, you had a slow progression towards gender equality. In Iceland, there was a really sharp break in 1983 with the formation of a women's political party that ran uh, candidates for parliament and dramatically increased women's representation in government. Since then, the country has passed more and more policies that have led it to being a far more egalitarian place than than most people understand or than any other countries can claim to be. Right. And we were talking about this um, before the show. Zach, you were saying that, you know, after the formation of that women's political party, that other parties realized that that was a successful political strategy. So it was in some ways kind of a, a cynical ploy to get more votes, but it ended up, I guess, helping women have better representation in government. I think it's also worth noting in the category of massively depressing things where the U.S. is on this scale. So Iceland is near the very best when it comes to gender equality, especially when it comes to the gender wage gap. You know, the number we always hear in the United States is women are paid 87 87 cents basically on the dollar compared to men. Right now, the World Economic Forum has the U.S. 49th in the world in terms of gender opportunity, equal opportunity, equal wages. We are behind Botswana and Bangladesh. So it isn't just that Iceland is at the far frontier of doing wonderful things, although it is. It's that the U.S. is lagging far, far, far behind and that it's getting worse. President Obama had taken steps near the end of his administration to try to mandate getting closer on the the gender pay gap. This will surprise no one. But then President Trump came in and got rid of that in its entirety. Yeah. And I I think it's also interesting when when we first kind of read this story, uh, one of our, our editors, Alexia Underwood, was like, well, it's technically illegal here, too, right, to have to pay men and women differently under the Equal Pay Act. Like, it's in our laws also. And so we kind of were looking into the story um, more deeply. And the difference here is that they're not just saying, yeah, you guys should totally pay people the same. They're actually putting in rules and processes in place to check and verify that every company that has, I believe it's at least 25 employees, has to obtain government certification that they are paying their employees equally. And if they don't, then they face a fine. So there are very strict government kind of regulations saying, like, we're not just going to trust that you're doing this and, you know, and hope nobody sues because that's, you know, in the U.S., that's how it happens, right? Like, you bring a lawsuit, you know, for for wage discrimination. Here, it's saying, no, the government's going to actively check up on you and will fine you. And I think that's a really fundamental difference between the way we've kind of addressed it here and the way this country is going about it. The question is, would that work if you right. ported it over to other countries. And it's not obvious. So the best research on the gender wage gap in the United States uh, is done by a Harvard economist named Claudia Golden. And Golden's work 
suggests that the majority of the gender wage gap comes from a type of job that requires people to work long hours and you can't get people to substitute for you, like working at a law firm or in big finance or something like that. And that's because when you when someone has children, women are, for sexist reasons, expected to do the majority of the childcare. And that means they get derailed in this kind of career, and so women get paid less after being in this kind of sector for a long period of time. And that's not because there's intentional discrimination. It's just because women no longer do the things that you need to get promoted in those jobs. They no longer have the capacity to do it. So the way to fix it would be to create mechanisms that would allow for more job substitution in these cases, allow for more people to do these kind of jobs without having to work these crazy hours and to try to make time off more equal between men and women and child-rearing duties. Right. It would make sense to have, like, paternal leave for things like that. So it's not just the woman who has to take off three months after having a baby and then she's three months behind in her career, missed out on that big project that would get, you know, her colleague the big raise, the big promotion, but, you know, also enabling men to take leave so that it's more equally balanced and it's not always the woman. But then, then the question is, if you enable men to take leave, will they? Right? There are sort of some cultural assumptions built in that are hard to unbuild. Right. So one is, when you hear an American politician or an American business leader say, I'm resigning to spend more time with my family, that's always interpreted as, that guy was fired. Yep. If a woman says, I'm taking time to spend with my family, that's always interpreted as, hey, wonderful, like Sheryl Sandberg, other prominent women, this is great. You're sort of signifying that this can work. And there's a stat about Iceland that I find fascinating. I was looking up in, in trying to prepare for the piece. So Iceland has the most gender-equal parental leave policy on the planet. So men and women get the same amount of leave mandated by the government, which is three months. Then there's another three months where they can divide it up as they want to. So functionally, you might say, hey, father, you have three months of one leave and you have three months more of another. But that second one where the parents can choose how to divide it, 19.7%, that's it, of men take that leave. So you have, in practice, even in Iceland, where women are seen not just as equals, but they're paid equally, as we were talking about politically. You know, Zach, as you were talking about, they have power they didn't have before. When men are given the choice, should they take leave? Only 20% do. And there's a cultural thing there that shows it's not just the United States, it's global, that men, when given the choice, don't necessarily want to take the leave that's offered to them. And that gets to the question of, even if you mandate something progressive like Iceland did, how do you get to the cultural part of it? Yeah, it's it's a really, really hard problem. Uh, and in Golden's paper, the one that I read called How to Achieve Denture Quality, she suggests that the change has to start at the company level, that governments can't just mandate this be fixed because the issue is who works when and what companies expect from their employees, right? It's not formal discrimination. And if that's the case, then what firm is going to take the leap of radically restructuring the way that people work? of trying to get people to work fewer hours and allow people to be more flexible in the hours that they do work, that starts to get at the kind of culture shift that you're talking about, Yoki, because it gives people more ability and discretion to develop more egalitarian home policies. I, I, don't, I don't know how to get that started. Right. I think this is an attempt to go to the company level, right, in some ways, this this law, right, because it's not – it is a government mandate, but it's going into the companies and saying we're going to – you know, you have to form this commission inside your company that is in charge of doing these things and making these changes. So I think that's one way. But, you know, when we talk about transferring that kind of policy to the U.S., uh, we're not real big on government regulations on business around here and particularly in, in this administration, right? So I can very, you know, easily see something like this getting major pushback from 
kind of the broader business community of people saying, you know, we don't want more government regulations. Like we will do this on our own, but don't mandate this. It's going to, you know, it's going to hamper our ability to be a flexible company and to make profits and things like that. Um, And I could easily see that happening here. And with that, we will close our first episode of 2018. Also, I want to raise. Yeah, hopefully, as do we all. There's gender equality in that request, too. (laughs) Um, We will look at times when we can do segments like this, where it's ways other countries are trying to solve things that are problems here, because there's something interesting always to whether they work or whether they don't. Thanks, as always, Jen Zach, to Jillian Weinberger, our producer, Peter Leonard, our engineer, to Julie Bogan, who does social media. Jillian will be leaving us in the not-distant future to go to South Korea for the Olympics, hopefully to return in case it's not a irradiated war zone, courtesy of our friends in North Korea. Sorry if your mom hears this, Jillian. Presuming she does not get irradiated, she'll be back. If you liked what you heard, we hope you do. Come find us on Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, review. It's the best way for us to build a community around this show. We're also at Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much any place else you listen to podcasts. Come find us, come subscribe to us, and we will be with you all next week.